Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning. It is the 17th of May, 2022. It is Tuesday, and we're going to have some Taste and See Tuesday fun a little later in today's program. But let me lead off with, um, you know, the question. It's always the question of the day. Where in the word are you today? And I want to have a little uh, word conversation here at the leadoff. So there's a linguist who, um, this is reported on in the BBC. So there's a linguist who says that 75% of our daily speech comes from as few as 800 words. And so, um, you know, I thought, let me think through that. Let me test that. 75% of our daily speech comes from as few as 800 words. Well, certainly if I do what I just did, which is repeat myself, then that is going to, that is going to hold up. Um, But think about the words you use in an average day, the kinds of conversations you have. uh, You know, if it's always about stop and get the bread and cheese and milk or be sure that you, I don't know, clean out the mouse mouse traps. <clears throat> yeah, that's going well at my house, by the way. Um, or did you feed the dog or did you pick up the kids? I mean, if you are only ever having conversations that are, you know, kind of household tactical or even just work related, hey, did you get my email? Hey, um, you know, what's your input on such and such? Uh, If you're only ever sort of checking off the same list of things every single day, um, did you did you do the laundry? Did you unload the dishwasher? What's for dinner? You you see how um, this linguist could be right, that 75 percent of our daily speech might come from as few as 800 words. We certainly all fall into language patterns, um, and sometimes maybe we fall into language ruts. So here is what Axios is encouraging people to do today. They're encouraging people to, you know what, lengthen your word list. Try some new words. So, you know, there's there's obviously services that provide like a word of the day. Uh, Merriam-Webster actually has a website um, on you know, the, the word searches that people do based on uh, or that's driven by news and current events. And so right now um, on the Merriam-Webster uh, News Trend Watch, let's see, let's see what's on there. What's on there? What's trending in terms of words that are driven by the news headlines? Um, codify, uh, and that is related to uh, Democrats seeking to codify Roe v. Wade uh, in, in light of the anticipated Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case. Um Contempt. The word contempt has been searched in relationship to former President Trump being held in contempt of court. Uh, Apparently, Bruce Willis has been sharing about an aphasia diagnosis, and so people have been searching the word aphasia. Um, People have been um, searching the term ill-begotten, and they've been searching the term oligarch. They've been searching the term tranche, because apparently there's a reference to a tranche of sanctions related to Russia so you see how this works, right? Um, and so uh, 
what would people be searching? What word would they be searching if they, you know, listened to you and I today? I want people to be searching the word of God, right? Right? So let us be searching the word every day. Let us be seeking first the kingdom of God every day and his righteousness. Let us be pursuing God and the things of God. First Chronicles twenty two nineteen reminds us to set our minds and our hearts to seek the Lord our God. Jesus encourages us to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto us. Colossians 3, uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us, if, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. So when you think about uh, word searches or searching the word, I want you to maybe consider searching the word of God today. Search him out. Seek him first. One exercise of the mind today might be to explore a list of theological terms. Maybe check out the gloss, the glossary of a book on your shelf. Um, maybe just Google list of heresies. That's an interesting way to expand and refine our vocabulary and to be sure that we rightly understand words that are being used by others. All right. So um, we often, you know, turn our attention to, you know, like the word on the street, like what's the word on the street about something? But let us first be attuned to the one who is the real word of God. Like let's do not only like a word of the day or even a good word of the day, but God's word of the day. Again, circling back around, where in the word are you today? Yeah, that's definitely uh, on my list of 800 words I use regularly every single day. Next up, we got Mark Caleb Smith. We're going to survey uh, what's happening with the Supreme Court and other political headlines. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Today. No, I'm well. I'm well. I'm um, you know, I've been I've been up for a while, so I'm good. Um, let's talk about uh, a couple of rulings issued yesterday by the Supreme Court of the United States. Not any of the cases maybe that have been high profile or top of mind for a lot of folks, but this Patel versus Garland case uh, is certainly interesting on the immigration front. What happened there? Yeah, it is an interesting case. Uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher the gentleman's name, so apologies up front. But Pankaj Kumar Patel uh, entered the United States illegally with his wife in the 1990s. And after some time elapsed, he went to uh, immigration services and asked for a basically permanent residency since he'd been here so long. Um, and as that process was unfolding, uh, he also went to Georgia, the state of Georgia, and asked for a driver's license. And as he was asking for a driver's license, he he claims that he mistakenly checked a box that he was a United States citizen on his driver's license application. Um, the state of Georgia started a criminal proceeding against him and eventually dropped it and said, you know, there's really no evidence of a crime here. He says it was a mistake um, and there was really nothing nothing sort of untoward about it. Um, while this is all unfolding, though, um, his status was denied. You know, he was eventually turned down for a permanent residency status, went back to court, was going to be deported, went back to court, 
and uh, and basically said, you know, why was my status denied? And the federal government's response to him was, well, you checked this box on your driver's license application, which is illegal because you're posing as a citizen to get a state benefit, which is against federal law. Um, and again, I know this can get really into the weeds, but Patel basically said, you know, this was a mistake. I wasn't really posing for anything. But probably the rub of this whole thing is, according to Georgia law, he had the ability to get a driver's license while his immigration status was under review. And so even if you want to argue that he checked the box mistakenly, um, he didn't break a law because he was eligible for the license based on his status. And so this sounds like a whole bunch of bureaucratic error, which it really is, you know, back and forth, government making mistakes. And in the meantime, Patel and his wife are threatened with deportation, and he appeals all of this to the federal courts and says, you know what, can you please save me from this bureaucratic nightmare and review my situation, change the facts of my case, look at the facts of my case, and um, review it, please. And what's shocking about the ruling yesterday is the Supreme Court basically said, you know what, federal courts have no jurisdiction here. In these kinds of cases, if a bureaucracy makes this sort of mistake, that's just the bureaucracy. It's a set of facts. It's not a legal situation. Therefore, we're done. And yeah, you know, this people- seems so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, it seems very unjust. The whole thing seems um, incredibly unjust. And um, then, I, I, do, is there a fix? Do we have any sense that there's a fix? I, I think the only fix will be if they can go into federal law and change this appeals process within the Immigration and Actualization Act and make it clear that people like Patel have access to federal courts. That's the only way I think you're going to see this change. Um, but if listeners want to check into it, check into Neil Gorsuch's dissenting opinion, which is uh, pretty scorching on this whole thing. Uh, he basically says, you know what? Shockingly, government makes mistakes. You know, big surprise. And the courts are there to back it up and to sort of see, was there a mistake and is there a remedy available? And Gorsuch is is stunned that that's no longer an option for people like Patel, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, I was shocked by the outcome, frankly, and hopefully the Congress can get together and make a, a legislative change. The court also released an opinion yesterday in the case of Senator Ted Cruz and the repayment of a personal loan that he made to his campaign. The court ruled on behalf of uh, of Senator Cruz in that case. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. We're going to take up uh, a conversation that Clarence Thomas, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, had recently about the draft leak opinion in the Dobbs case. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do I, 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 it don't mean a thing. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is here. The word is verboten. Verboten means forbidden, especially by an authority. Um, There you go. There will be the word that we will extract from the uh, National Review piece from the quote by Justice Clarence Thomas in relationship to the leaked draft opinion in the Dobbs case. Uh, The word is verboten. Um. Mark, what uh, what did Justice Thomas have to say about what's going on? Yeah, I mean, what what was verboten, according to Justice Thomas, was the idea that anyone would leak any part of an opinion uh, has just sort of been so outside of the boundaries of the court uh, that it's just unthinkable. 
And he says that it's really evidence that something has changed in the minds of, of the people and in the minds of people who work at the court itself. Um, and again, I understand uh, for people, for listeners and others, you think of the court maybe as just a, another political branch of government, that it's just another group of people making decisions that affect you, not all that different than the president or Congress, but the court is really designed to be outside of politics. It's designed to be free from political pressure, and they should be able to do their jobs um, without rancor and partisanship and, and demonstrations and things like that, or at least in theory. And Thomas says, we've lost that. You know, that's gone right now. Because uh, even within our own chambers, someone thinks it's necessary to leak an opinion uh, before it's been issued. Yeah, and he compares it to an infidelity. He says it's like an infidelity that uh, you just can't forget. Uh, you can't undo it, and it's going to be there no matter what. When we think about the term infidelity, um, the use or its application here is interesting. I mean, he's certainly uh, using a word that we tend to think of in terms of unfaithfulness in, uh, in a marriage um, or unfaithfulness um, in relationship to to God, right? I mean, those would be the two places yeah. that I would think of of infidelity uh, being used as a term, and he's applying it here to, um, you know, this this sense of relationship that uh, maybe Supreme Court justices and those within the system, um, within the you know the sort of the circle of knowing, you know, he understood that to be that that level of uh, of relationship in terms of the expectations one of the other. And that's, that is a, a really sacred thing to have been broken. Yeah. I mean, the Supreme court is a community, you know, they're not just nine justices. They each have a handful of clerks. It's not a big organization and they have this trust with one another that even if they disagree vehemently, they're going to be confidential. They're going to maintain secrecy. Uh, and so that they can have open and frank discussions and, and people have to understand, too, 95% of the court's business is not that controversial. They make a lot of decisions. They interpret a lot of federal law. A lot of decisions are nine to nothing. So there's a lot of agreement on a lot of issues. But these high-profile, divisive things have, have led to this kind of conduct. And I think that's what Thomas finds so shocking. And frankly, um, I do as well. Mm. Um, I'd love to uh, hear your take on this piece that I've read um, in uh, in the New York Times. Maureen Dowd is the opinion writer in this piece, and she is, um, uh, I mean, the headline, I know she doesn't write the headline, but the headline is, Too Much Church in the State. She is arguing here that um, uh, that particularly justices like Amy Coney Barrett um, right. They bring too much church into uh, into the conversations of the court. What um what do you what's your take on Marine Dowd's take? Um, you know, I try to be respectful and straightforward with people um, and their opinions. But uh, speaking as a conservative and someone who's been watching the court and studying the court for a long time, um, I find her article to be shocking. Uh, and it's shocking because I think it lacks perspective. Uh, I can understand why someone like Maureen Dowd may be upset about the fact that the court could overturn Roe versus Wade here soon. But she argues that there's too much personal perspective, too much religious belief animating the court and that the court is you know, unelected. It's unaccountable. And it's just stunning in her mind 
that um, five or six unelected people can make a decision that affects the entire country. I understand that perspective, but she doesn't understand that people like me um, looked at the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage as five or six unelected people imposing their views on the entire country. And so she only seems to have this concern when it comes to issues that she cares about. She doesn't seem to have the concern when it, when it applies to other things in a different direction. And so I think we should all be worried about justices imposing their own beliefs. That's a concern that we should have about the court. What's different here, I would argue, is the justices aren't imposing their beliefs about abortion on the country. They're basically saying if they overturn Roe, the states and the people need to decide this. We're not deciding it. We're not telling you what our moral perspective is on abortion, uh, whether we agree or disagree with it, but we're going to let the people's elected officials pass laws and deals with that issue. I think that's very different than them imposing their views on the entire nation. So, you know, I, I am not persuaded by her argument whatsoever. Um, I can understand where it's coming from, but uh, to me, it's just a bit, uh, a bit outlandish in light of decisions like Obergefell or even in light of Roe itself. So one of the things Maureen Dowd says in this piece is, first of all, she she identifies as a Catholic, which is curious, uh, right? So that gets to the question of, you know, who's allowed to call themselves what in this culture today? I mean, apparently you can slap it, you can, you know, you can slap the moniker of Christianity on just about anything. Um, and the same with Catholicism. I mean, if you claim to be Catholic, apparently you're Catholic, not according to the church, but according to your own, you know, self-identifying uh, moniker. So she says this, uh, this is a quote, this Catholic feels an intense disquiet that Catholic doctrine may be shaping or misshaping the freedom and the future of millions of women and men. There is a corona of religious fervor around the court, a churchly ethos that threatens to turn our whole country upside down. Um, here's what I think she misses. The whole country is turned upside down. It has been turned upside down on this particular point now um, for more than a generation. Like this is turning things right side up in my view and or potentially turning things right side up uh, in my view. And when she says that, you know, the the Catholic doc doctrine may be shaping or misshaping the freedom and the future of millions of women and men, she seems to completely miss the millions of potential men, m women and men who who have lost their lives to abortion in the United States of America since the decision of the court in 1973. Like I, I was that not a religious decision? I mean, it was in my mind. No, absolutely. And it was an imposition of a moral point of view, um, just as strong as potentially this decision would be. So, yeah, I when it comes to politics and it comes to the issue of abortion, uh, I think a lot of the rationality gets drained out of the discussion and it becomes quite emotional and quite heated. And I think that's where this column really is. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. A remarkable piece from her uh, in all the worst ways. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting things out there uh, for you to be looking at and reading out. Um, uh, NPR has taken an interesting look at the role of religion in the politics of abortion. You might want to check that out at NPR.org. Um, I'd love to hear your one minute commentary on the idea that budgets are moral documents. If that's true, what does the U.S. budget, the United States budget, say about the morals of people in the United States of America? Yeah, I, I completely agree that budgets are, are moral documents. Uh, anytime you have a law with any teeth attached to it, it's going to take a moral perspective. It's going to put priorities in place. And, you know, if you want to really see uh, what someone's moral framework is, look at how they spend their money. 
you know, look at their bank balance and where the money goes. That's a reflection of what we believe and who we are. So I have no issue with the fact that the federal budget really is a moral document of one kind or another. Um, but I think when people criticize the federal budget and they say things like, well, you know, we're going to spend almost $800 billion on national defense, does that mean we value war over peace? Well, I kind of understand that to a, to a, to a point, but we're going to spend um, roughly 53% of the budget uh, on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And so while you know federal defense spending is big, um, it is not anywhere near the biggest item in the budget. Social spending generally accounts for about two-thirds of the budget itself. And so you know, critics who use the budget to sort of bash the military, I'm not that persuaded by it because most of our spending goes to social programs. Yeah, ex- that's exactly right. All right, well, you guys consider the conversation today um, about budgets being moral documents. What does your family budget say um, about your family's morals? What does your personal budget say about your morals? You know, that the I know we don't may, maybe have checkbook registers anymore, but it's a good opportunity to consider um, what's revealed about what we really believe by how we're spending our actual money. Uh, Mark Caleb Smith, as always, thank you so very much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Take care. You too. We'll be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile when you think you can't smile. (laughs) All right, I am laughing. Uh, Those of you who uh, didn't understand when I suggested that people don't have checkbook registers anymore. Yeah, a lot of people not writing checks anymore. Overwhelmingly, people paying their bills through electronic transfer of funds or auto pay. Um, people actually getting paid that way, like, right? Most people not getting a quote-unquote paycheck, right? It it happens automatically. All right, there you go. Um, when was the last time you really thought about what you're thinking about? So just pause for a moment and think about what you're thinking about. And then consider how and why you're thinking what you're thinking about what you're thinking about. I know that's a little confusing. So what are you thinking about? Think about what you're thinking about. And then think about how and why you're thinking what you're thinking about, what you're thinking about. That is an internal look at our own worldview. That's us seeking to actually see the lens or see the filter or see the frame or see the perspective through which we are seeing and hearing and processing and responding to the world around us. That's, that's our worldview. Um, and if you think you function out of a biblical, Christian, or gospel worldview— Um, which I suspect that you would say about yourself because you're listening to this program. How do you test that? Well, you test what you say by what you do. You test what you say by what you do because we do what we believe. We actually do what we believe. Jesus described it as, uh, you know, judging a tree by its fruit. It's one thing for, you know, a tree to have a a label hanging around it or a little sign at the bottom that says it's an apple tree. But if it's producing lemons, it's a lemon tree. Well, the American Worldview Inventory is revealing a lot about us. Uh, And there's a, a, a pretty significant disconnect between what we say about ourselves and what we really believe based on what we do. We're going to have that conversation with George Barna up next.
George Barna is back with the latest installment from the American Worldview Inventory 2022. Dr. Barna, good morning. How you doing, Carmen? Well, I am fantastic. I um, I hear that you have a particular affinity for the Yankees, and maybe I should ask you about that. Talk about looking at the worldview of parents of preteens. Uh, you know, some of the Yankees are parents of preteens, so I, I think it's germane to speak <laughs> about the Yankees, but I'm not sure that your audience would go for that. So we'll go back to the preteen research. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a detailed look right now at how the worldview of parents of preteens misses the mark in America. Um, George, you lead off here with a description of, uh, you know, like a potential plane crash. So you want to give that analogy and then help us understand how the cri- the parenting crisis in America lines up? Well, uh, you know, I mean, there are things that we know about the airline industry in terms of how they build and then test and then sell their, their airline, uh, uh, the airplanes. And uh, there have been a number of models over the years that have been, let's say they didn't test well, but they were sold anyway and they wind up having crashes and, you know, it's a real issue. And and so we've got a similar kind of thing here with parenting, where parents in America, parents of preteens are really in a state of spiritual crisis. And when you look at the support systems that ought to be helping them to be effective, that ought to be testing the different approaches that they're taking, that ought to be providing the kinds of fixes and resources and guidance that they need, it's not happening. Uh, and and we can include churches, we can include extended family, we can include uh, many other institutions in our culture, and that's because they're all distracted or just disinterested in this whole issue of raising young children. We don't really put much of a value on young lives. I mean, we all say, oh, they're cute, they're fun, we need to educate them, blah, blah, blah. But in terms of treating them like the precious human beings that they are and recognizing that before they reach the age of 13, everything that they're going to be relying upon in terms of their systems for life as they become teenagers, then young adults, then middle-aged, then older adults, all of that is developed in those preteen years. And so it's critical that we recognize how important it is for us to invest heavily in the development of our children, not just so that they get admitted to Harvard or, or med school or can buy the biggest house on the block or the latest model of Porsche. It's really about their worldview. How are they going to see themselves? How are they going to understand God, the world that he created, the purpose that he has for their life? the investment that they themselves are going to make in the human race to bless other people, just as God has blessed them. All of that is a result of what happens when somebody is young. So, you know, what I I suggest is that we're heading toward a tragic crash in America, just like some of those ill-fated airplanes. I read um, recently in The Atlantic that there's one parenting decision that matters more than all others. And because it was based on aggregated data that was, you know, a big data dump from the IRS, um, it never accounts in the uh, in the article for the influence of faith or certainly not, you know, institutional Christianity or the church. 
And I thought to myself as I was reading it, I bet George Barna has a different answer to the question, what's the most important parenting decision a parent ever makes? Well, you know, Carmen, we, we around here work with an expression, you get what you measure. And so when you work with churches, what you get is a desire to have a big church, because the thought is that makes ministry easier, it makes it more effective, etc. And consequently, we found that what churches measure are five things, how many people show up, how much money they raise, how many programs they offer, how many staff people they hire, and how much square footage they built out. And so what that leads to basically is a big ministry. But our studies on discipleship show that big ministries are no more effective in discipleship than miniature ministries. In fact, house churches tend to be much more effective, even though they have maybe one one one-hundredth of the number of people that a megachurch might have. So with the IRS looking at data, yeah, I can only imagine what kind of data points they were studying. You know, but the, the key thing is to recognize that the one who made us, God himself, tells us that we are essentially spiritual beings. And we may spend time in tangible bodies on a planet where we get confused about why we're here, which is to know, love, and serve God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. But frankly, what we find is that almost no churches across the country, there are a few that we found, but very few churches are really measuring issues of discipleship. You know, how people understand themselves and their lives, and what are the principles that propel them forward, and what is the fruit that they're bearing for the kingdom of God. And so if you don't measure those things, they're not on your radar screen, of course, you're going to turn to other measures that really are just distortions of reality. So we've talked uh, before with George Barna about the um, the findings of the American Worldview Inventory 2022 in relationship to parents, and we recognize that you know, there's a loss of spiritual depth and cohesion among this particular cohort, um, that there is a fading of biblical Christianity, and that there's really an expressed syncretism in the way that they approach everything from moral decision-making to uh, the influences to to which they expose their children, even at very young ages. Um, when, you, when you think about where you are in this conversation, George, um, at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, when you think about where you are and you sort of look out at the horizon, I mean, is this crisis in parenting I mean, you know, a, a coming disaster for which we need to be preparing ourselves culturally? Oh, no, it, it's a disaster that's already arrived. And so, mm-hmm. the, I mean, which is even a, a bigger issue. I mean, the fact that I know you understand these things, but a lot of people would ask that question really wondering, gee, is this something that we're going to see in the future? No, it's already here. And so what we have are parents who aren't thinking about worldview, parents who do not have a biblical worldview to express and to model for their children, and parents who, because they're not focused on worldview, are allowing outsiders, the arts and entertainment media, the news and information media, the government, the schools, their children's peers, allowing all of those entities to have greater influence than they themselves as parents are having on the worldview of their children, And part of that also relates to another issue about the parents' worldview, 
which is that because they are abundantly syncretistic, meaning that they don't even have a single worldview that they buy into, they're just randomly drawing from a variety of worldviews that make them feel good or that are popular or whatever the case may be that draws them to those elements. And then they're blending them together into a unique synthesis of ideas. But the problem with that is that it winds up looking like a jumbled mess to their children. Mm -hmm. They're confused about their worldview, about their purpose in life, about how to live life. And that gets communicated to their children. What we found in this research is that often parents will talk about what they believe and why they believe it. Um, probably not so much why, but at least they'll talk about what they believe. But then their actions betray those beliefs because their actions actually conflict with the things that they've tried to tell their children. This is how you ought to behave. This is how you ought to think. This is what you ought to gear yourself to in the future. And so what we discovered is the big picture on this is that children who between 15 to 18 months of age and 13 years of age are developing their worldview, they're trying to figure everything out. And so they look at the things that they know and trust, their parents being chief among them. But when they see that their parents are living differently than they speak, they conclude, wow, my parents must be as confused as I am. I guess this faith that they've recommended to me, this Christianity must not have the answers that I'm looking for. Because if it did, my parents would live consistently. So I guess I have to look elsewhere. And frankly, that's what opens the door, particularly for the arts and entertainment media. Because when they watch a movie, they watch a TV show, they listen to a piece of music, they play a video game, all these different media they're exposed to, those tend to give a consistent worldview. And so the kids are attracted to that because it makes sense to them. Now, it's very, very rarely a biblical worldview, but it is a worldview that the kids can understand and they can emulate. All right, we got to take a very brief break. We're talking with George Barna. We've been talking about a detailed look at how the worldview of parents of preteens misses the mark. We're going to turn our attention to improving parents' ability to raise spiritual champions. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, picking up with the uh, fourth release from the American Worldview Inventory 2022. You can find it all at culturalresearchcenter.com. Dr. George Barna is with us again today. Um, George, let's turn our attention specifically to the subset of parents who are born again. So, you know, Christian parents of preteen children. Um, what are the numbers like there, and are they doing a better job? Uh, slightly better. You know, I mean, let's give credit where credit's due. It, it, it's not overly positive. What we find is that uh, among the parents of preteens, roughly one out of five of them can be considered to be born-again Christians, not because they call themselves that, but based upon their beliefs about sin and salvation. So these are people who will say, when I die, I know that I'm going to go to heaven. There's no doubt in my mind. But there's also no doubt that it's only because I've confessed my sin, and I've embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and it's only because of Him that I'll have eternal salvation. But when we look at that one out of five preteen parents who meet that criterion, we find that only 8% of them 
of the born-again parents have a biblical worldview. So is it better than the 2% among all parents? Absolutely. Is it a, a huge difference? Not really. It's a little bit different, a little bit better, uh, and that's good, but we really need to grow that as well. All right, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about improving parents' ability. Um, what what would be helpful? I mean, I, you know, maybe the starting point is to identify and then change beliefs and behaviors that, that are unbiblical. Yeah, Carmen, I, I think there are probably three different ways that we could go about this. One would be to take the parents of preteens uh, who are born again and alter their beliefs and behaviors, the ones specifically that are least likely to reflect biblical principles. That's one approach. A second approach would be to compare the born-again parents to the non-born-again parents and identify the beliefs that are most similar between the two groups, and then with the born-again group to realign those beliefs with biblical principles so that at least they stand out not only in their households, but in the culture at large. And a, a third approach might be the most basic, which would be to identify some of the most essential biblical beliefs and behaviors, ones that we might consider to be cornerstones of the Christian faith. Because we know that there are probably five, six, seven of those kinds of beliefs that as I've looked at the data patterns, what I've discovered is if people don't have these foundation blocks in place, they've got nothing to build on. And so everything else becomes a mess pretty quickly. So those would be three different approaches that, that we could take. Okay. When you talk about the foundation blocks, you want to just hit a few, uh, hit on a few of them. Like what are the essentials there? Yeah. I mean, certainly one of those would have to be that they do believe that God exists, but mm. it's not just that he's any old deity or, or that there are many deities. You can take your pick. It's a smorgasbord of, of divinity, and it's up to you, whatever your taste is. Now, there is the one true living God described in the scriptures, and he knows everything. He has all power and authority. He created everything that exists. He has always existed, always will existed. He's pure. He's holy. He's just. I mean, that's the kind of God that we're talking about. And if that's your understanding of God, that will change your understanding of yourself. It will change your understanding of your own life. It will change your understanding of other people and how you are called to treat them. So that that's certainly one of those building blocks. A second one would be the place from which we get that kind of understanding, believing that the Bible does exist, but it's not just another book. It's not a book that some old guys put together based on their thoughts and feelings the way that people do today. No, this was God inspiring these people and essentially writing the Bible through them so that we would have his truth principles for us to live by. And that would be a third thing that's a cornerstone, which is that there is absolute moral truth. That's incredibly unpopular in American society today, the notion that there is truth, it is identifiable, it, it uh, has consequences when you violate those truths, and that you can find those truths in God's Word. So those are three of the building blocks that are very important. There are others as well. I mean, we can talk about three or four more, but uh, if you don't have those in place, 
the chances of you developing a biblical worldview or being able to shape one in the life of your child is very slim. Yeah, we're not going to have time today to um, to cover more of those um, particular points, but encourage people to read um, release number four. All, all of the re- releases now available at culturalresearchcenter.com. We've been looking today at numbers three and four, but there's others available as well. If you've missed any of our prior conversations with George Barna, um, you'll want to go back and catch those in the podcast version. I think, uh, George, when you talk about, you know, just that most basic question, God is. And then God isn't just anything. I mean, God is, and God has spoken. Um, God has revealed himself in the Bible. Uh, and and in there, we discover not only who God is, but who we are and the human condition and God's redemptive arc uh, in Jesus Christ and who Christ is. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And so um, I, I better understand when you use the term biblical worldview, and you're talking not just about core beliefs, but behaviors and lifestyle that flows out of those core beliefs. I'm beginning connective tissue here, and so I just appreciate your patience with us over time as you uh, suss out all of this really good information um, from this year's American Worldview Inventory. It's a real blessing to us. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity, and always keep in mind, we do what we believe. So these things are intimately connected and that's why it's important to talk about not just what you believe, but you show that you believe it when you put it into practice. We do what we believe and you get what you measure. Well, those are maybe my two little quotable things from George Barna today. Dr. Barna, thank you so much as always for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. We, uh, we love our time together. Thank you, Carmen. I enjoy it. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Uh, there's a story posted at faithwire.com about a Missouri family um, really, really seeking to demonstrate who their Christian uh, turn the other cheek attitude toward a thief. So they captured um, a man approaching their home um, on, you know, their their video, you know, you know, like the kind of video that's at the front door, right? That kind of thing. And they see him stealing two leaf blowers. They actually, he actually went into the garage um, and stole two leaf blowers. And so, you know, obviously they're they're troubled by that. Um, and so, seeking to respond in a way, right, that would love neighbor and that would um, be like Jesus, they left him a Bible on their front porch. And he says, uh, "If you want to return what you took." Um, it's there for you because the things that you took are not going to make you happy, but give this a read. Um, it's what guides our life. Wondering, um, you know, what that looks like to follow the second commandment directly <laughs> in our lives. Um, what does it look like? I mean, nobody wants to be, I mean, nobody wants their things to be stolen, like, right? Um, but this idea that you would leave a thief a note uh, that, you know, if, uh, assuming they're going to return, right, um, and invite them to return what they took, no questions asked, and then to take what you are now offering them, 
which is the very word of the very living God, and and then a follow-up conversation uh, with you about him. It's just an interesting um, interesting approach, right? Interesting approach to uh, to being neighborly and and addressing um, a real concern, right, in our neighborhoods. Um, yeah, there you go. I just thought it was fascinating and, and a very interesting approach and very countercultural, which obviously are the kinds of things we want to be lifting up today. Um, hey, in terms of what's going on in Congress, uh, you should be aware of this. Um, the uh, Congress is seeking to jumpstart legislation um, following the attack in Buffalo on Saturday, Buffalo, New York. Um, you're going to see a Uh, an effort to pass the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. Here's part of the challenge there. Um, If they couldn't pass and haven't bothered seeking to pass uh, what Senators Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey uh, put forward in 2013, following the shooting in Sandy Hook, if they still can't deal with... um, with that legislation, you know, how are they going to possibly be ready to deal with legislation that uh, that actually adds layers and layers of uh, of bureaucracy to the departments of Homeland Security, Department of Justice and the FBI, which would um, provide government surveillance and civil rights activists are concerned about it as well. So there's a lot going on to be paying attention to at the national level in relationship uh, to the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, and I thought I would alert you of that. we got another hour up next. Mornings. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.